Ephesians 3.1 begins, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... You've heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you? The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. One Monday in 1978, a limousine pulled up to a shopping center in downtown Kansas City. It had been rented by cash. An unknown man stepped out of the back holding a paper bag filled with $2 bills. He proceeded to hand them out to anyone he saw and anyone who was willing to receive them. And he promised he would be back the next day. Sure enough, Tuesday at noon, he was back in the same place with another bag full of $2 bills. The crowd was a little bigger this time, and some local news reporters were on hand. He wouldn't say anything about himself. By Thursday, the national news had picked up the story. When asked why he was doing this, he simply said, You people are responsible for me having it, and I want you to have it back. Turns out he wasn't a billionaire or a famous philanthropist. His name was John Leslie. He had just been hired by KCKN radio station as a disc jockey for their new morning show, and they figured a money giveaway was a promotional stunt that would get a lot of listeners in for the coming program. So one day in the city of Ephesus, a strange-looking Jewish man came to town. He was something of a mystery. Uh, He was an academic, a world traveler, a man who had been a leader within Judaism and now, seemingly, a leader within a new sect called Christianity. He was a Roman citizen by birth. That was saying something. He had a stunning intellect, and yet he wore an apron, making tents to support himself and his fellow travelers. He would work miracles, sometimes lots and lots of miracles, but he was very humble, very tender as he spoke. One look at this guy showed that he had been beaten many times, that he had done some jail time, that he suffered from chronic illness, and that he probably didn't have much by way of a savings account. He proclaimed that he knew the real truth about life and about God, about heaven and hell, and he spread this message all over, from house to house throughout the city for three years, and then one day he was gone. Now, five or seven years after a letter came from this man named Paul, and it had more truths explained, more mysteries disclosed. In our text tonight, Paul says that he is, in fact, the mystery man, and that the Lord had given him a ministry of mystery, not just to the Ephesians, but to all the Gentiles, which is not what we'd expect and definitely not what we would have designed if we were the ones strategizing on how best to spread the gospel uh, through this new church. So we begin in verse 1. We read this. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. There was never any challenge to the idea that Paul authored Ephesians until the late 18th century. Now, naturally, there are scholars who turn their noses up at the idea that Paul really wrote what we're reading. 
But the message of this letter hinges on whether he really is the man that he says he is. In a moment, we're going to hear the author say, I have a unique message that was directly revealed to me from God himself. And so it matters who this person is and whether the person speaking in this letter is lying to us or not. And so for a second time in this letter, he identifies himself by name. He says, it's me, it's Paul. And he calls himself here the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, in other verses in this epistle, he describes himself as an apostle, a servant, a saint, an adopted son. We know beyond that, he was, of course, the founder of the church in Ephesus. He was the dear friend of many of the people in the congregation. We have a lot of roles to play as Christians. Uh, You may be a spouse, a parent, a child, a cousin, a friend, a co-worker, a classmate, a teammate, or maybe you're just a fellow passenger on the bus one day. But each of those areas is an opportunity for you or is, is a spot that you've been scattered into by the Lord where you are meant to be a representative of Jesus Christ and an outpost of his grace. And in each one of those areas, we're going to Uh, sort of interact a little bit differently or have certain ways of applying our role as a representative of Jesus Christ depending on the situation. And so there's a lot of different words that describe us in the New Testament and just in regular life. And Paul felt that way. You know, in this moment, he's saying, you know, even though I'm a prisoner, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Nero. I'm not a prisoner of circumstances. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, let's remember what's come so far in this letter. Paul has been talking very excitedly all about God's great power for his people. He's been talking about peace and being filled full to the fullness of Jesus Christ and inheritance and every spiritual blessing and about salvation and how our lives have been prepared for glory and how God works everything out in agreement with his unstoppable will. It's just been piling up more and more and more. And we've talked about how he has these cascading sentences that are hundreds of words long without taking a break. And then, uh, you know, if this was a dialogue, it's as if the reader would then say, oh, and where are you, Paul? Oh, yeah, I'm in chains right now. Yeah, what are you talking about? Oh, God's power and God working things out for his people and the peace of God and the plan of God and the unstoppable nature of God's will. And and, and I'm in chains. I'm chained to a a Roman soldier. And uh, I might be getting beheaded here pretty soon. So I had to write this letter sort of in a hurry. Paul then adds the kicker on top of that. Not only is he in jail, he says, not only am I a prisoner, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. That's an interesting thing to say. One commentator wrote, Gentile liberty had cost Paul his freedom. It's true. Klein Snodgrass points out, the only reason why Paul was in prison was because he thought Gentiles had the same access to God that Jews did. And that's true. By this point, you know, in an earlier part of the book of Acts, uh, James, the brother of John, had been imprisoned and beheaded by Herod. Peter had been imprisoned but set miraculously free. Uh, And now Herod was dead, right? And, and, And things had sort of calmed down. Paul, because of the persecution that began when Stephen was martyred, Uh, and Saul of Tarsus was holding the coats, and then he was breathing threats and violence against the church. That has sort of scattered a bunch of people out of Jerusalem into other parts of the Roman Empire. 
But we're, we're beyond that now. Paul is now Paul, and he's a missionary, and, and we're really not seeing anybody getting arrested for being a Christian yet, except for Paul, and if you traveled with Paul. And so, you know, the only reason he's being arrested is because he caused trouble in the Jewish mind because he said, God wants Gentiles to be saved too. And even the Christian Jews in Jerusalem had a really hard time with this, a really hard time. And that's the only reason that he is in jail. He hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't lied. He hadn't cheated. He hadn't, you know, failed to file, you know, file his paperwork or anything like that. The only reason he's in jail is because he thought Gentiles had access to God like Jews did. Luckily for us, Paul thought his imprisonment was worth it. He thought our liberty was worth it. Now, he didn't know us individually, but he looked out on the Gentile world and he realized the calling that God had placed on his life. And he says, you know what? Those Gentiles who have no idea what's going on and who certainly don't deserve to be brought into God's plan, they're worth the suffering that I'm going to have to go to, go through day after day, month after month, year after year. They're worth the hundreds of miles I'm going to walk. They're worth the shipwrecks I'm going to go through. They're worth my being beaten and naked and robbed and stoned and scourged and thrown in prison and spat upon and hated by my countrymen and treated poorly by my fellow Christians back in Jerusalem. Gentiles are worth all of that. And he wanted to save Jews as well, as, of course. But man, Paul thought our liberty was worth his suffering. So much of Ephesians is about Christians having a different perspective, right? That's been his whole focus, really, since the beginning of the book. He's like, I I want you to understand. I want you to understand what salvation is really about, what being in Christ is really about. I want you to understand what it means that God has prepared a, a life for you and prepared a path for you to walk with him to accomplish these good things that he's been planning since before the foundation of the earth. He's all about us having a proper understanding of what it means to be in Christ. Paul's perspective on his imprisonment is a great example of this. It's completely counterintuitive to our normal way of thinking, right? We look at that, even as students of the Bible, and we think, oh no, it's a bummer that Paul is in prison. We think that Paul in prison is a bad thing, that it's a limiting thing, that it's a setback in the work of the gospel. We think, no, we want to get... Paul to Mars Hill. We want to get Paul to the amphitheater. We want to get Paul in front of lots of people and sent lots of places. That's what needs to happen. And Paul says the opposite is true. He says, I'm here because Christ wants me here, and it's going to help further the faith of the Gentiles. It's going to help the spread of the gospel. In verse 13, he'll go as far as saying, don't even worry about it. Don't be discouraged at all by the fact that I'm in prison because my suffering is for your glory. This is very counterintuitive. This is not the perspective that the human's mind wants to have normally. The term he uses here for on behalf of can be translated as for the furtherance of. Paul knew his suffering was not only within the will of God, but it was serving to spread the gospel, not to hamper it. Verse 2 says, you've heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you? So this verse is one of the reasons why some scholars say, well, Paul obviously didn't write Ephesians because, look, he, he's saying the recipients don't know him and he was personal friends with all these people in Ephesus and so obviously Paul didn't write this letter. That's dumb. 
The simple explanation is that, number one, Paul is speaking rhetorically, and number two, it had been a lot of years since he had been in Ephesus, five or seven since he left. And a lot of new people had been saved who didn't know Paul personally, and he's speaking predominantly to them, primarily to them in this letter. Those newer believers would have undoubtedly asked their friends who had been Christians a number of years, they would have said, hey, tell us about this Paul guy. We've heard things, but will you tell us about him? And who knows what they would have said. Think of the stories they could have told. There's some suggestion that Paul actually uh, had to fight wild beasts for real, like in a gladiator sense in the, in the city of Ephesus. He had a lot of trouble there. Um, it, but, but perhaps these Christians who had been there for a while longer started explaining how, you know what, Paul, Paul's just about the most Jewish man you can imagine. Uh, that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, how he previously persecuted the church on behalf of the Sanhedrin, how he knew the Hebrew scriptures by memory, how he could reason through any theological issue with, in any sort of debate and come out clearly. But now he's out here in the Gentile world telling pagans about Christ. The, the most Jewish Jew we've ever heard of isn't even welcome in the synagogues anymore. They drove him out. And now he's talking to the barbarous pagan Gentiles about Jesus. Wow, the young Christian might respond. Seems like this guy should maybe be the apostle for the Jews, right? Uh, On paper, that's what we'd think because Paul is the Jewish expert. Paul has the Jewish heritage. He had the skills that could open any Jewish door from our way of thinking. To not use him to minister to the Jews would seem like a mistake to us. Sometimes you'll hear sports commentators talk about how a particular player is being misused on their team and that the coach, the manager, they need to, they need to properly use that player. You've got to get that player into the right position so they can score properly and they look at the stats and they look at the, the matchups and they make the determinations based off of what makes the most common sense. And that's the human mindset. And then God comes along and says, Paul... You're the foremost expert on Judaism, maybe in the entire world. You know what we're going to do? Make you the apostle to the Gentiles. I'll have Peter talk to the Sanhedrin. You don't need to talk to them. I'll have John talk to those people in Jerusalem. You don't need to really spend much time talking to them. You're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It's totally the opposite of what we would do based off of the stat sheet. But it's just another revelation of the fact that God knows and we don't know. And that his plans are not like our plans in many ways. And that his thoughts are not like our thoughts in many ways. Now, Paul calls this gift that God had given him, meaning the gift of being a a, a minister to the Gentiles, a minister to the Ephesians and to us by extension. Paul calls this a gift, but he calls it an administration of God's grace. Your translation may use the word dispensation, ding, 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 or stewardship. That's a good one, too. The term's a very important one, especially around here. It simply means a set of household rules. That's what the term is talking about, a set of household rules. The idea is that at different times, there are different household rules when it comes to God's program and plan. Now, this doesn't mean that people are saved different ways. People are always saved the same way, by grace through faith, okay? But even in your own house, even if you're the most consistent parent in the world, you understand that things change over time depending on the situation. Bedtime is a good example. 
Nap time is a good example. Certain things go away, certain things are added on, certain things are changed. And the fact of the matter is that God at different times has different ways with how he interacts with the world and how he interacts with his people. And this is why we identify, one of the terms we use to identify our doctrine is dispensationalism. We are dispensationalist at Calvary Hanford, and it comes from the use of this word in this verse and other places. We recognize that there are different periods of activity in God's unfolding work. That is why not one of you brought a lamb to church tonight to be slaughtered for atonement, right? Not one of you did. Didn't anybody read the Old Testament? But we are in a different era of God's program for the world. And it's not, a, it's not meant to be a weird thing. We're just identifying like a term that is used in the Bible. And we're identifying the fact that, you know, the way God interacted with uh, people before the law is different than the way he interacted with them in, under the law and is different than the way we, we interact with him now that we're beyond the cross and the resurrection. There's a difference. It's a different set of household rules. And again, God is not changing. The way people are being saved is not changing, but our interaction with him uh, is according to a different set of rules. Paul calls our time, the church age, a dispensation of grace. This grace is freely offered to everyone. It doesn't matter your nationality or your status or any other separating factor. In this era of God's household rules, grace goes out to all corners and invites everyone to receive salvation through faith. In this dispensation of grace, grace is the characteristic element. That's an important thing for us to remember. What defines this dispensation, this era, the church age grace does? That doesn't mean that there was no grace in the Old Testament. Of course there was, but grace defines the era of faith that we find ourselves in. And that means that our activity, our attitudes, our words, it should be all about grace. That is the main feature of God's work toward us in this era, and we are called to reflect him and to do his work, and his work right now is characteristically gracious. And so we want to be about grace. Verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. Paul here and elsewhere explains that he received direct revelation from God himself. There are people who want to take Paul out of Christianity. They call his teachings Paulianity, and, and they are mad about it. I remember years ago, I was at a gas station, and I just felt like the Lord wanted me to give the guy at the next pump over an invite to church. I did, and he said, well, what do you believe? Well, we're down here. Well, what do you, what do you believe about, you know, the New Testament? Yeah, we're down with the New Testament, you know, as a rule. <laughs> well, that's Pollyanity, he told me. I'd never heard that term before. I thought, that's a pretty cool term. Uh, <laughs> he says, well, I don't believe in that Pollyanity stuff, and Paul changed everything according to his own whims. But it wasn't just this one random guy at the 76 station uh, you know, I've recently heard a podcast where people were talking about how lucky they were that they finally deconstructed their faith. Have you heard this term? It's a popular term out there right now. People who grew up typically evangelical and conservative are now so free and liberated. They've deconstructed their faith, meaning they've gotten rid of the stuff they don't like and do whatever they want to do. But they've deconstructed their faith and they realize, you know, their eyes are open now be, and how good it is that they've realized that Paul was just a racist and a sexist. Oh, okay. 
And so they don't need to listen to what he has to say. Right now, you can go on Amazon and find books about Paul the false apostle or Paulianity or Paul versus Jesus or Paul versus the other apostles. And the, there's, this, there's this German of an idea that Paul had a, his own thing going and kind of took over Christianity and no one could stop him. He was like, you know, the blob and he just <laughs> infiltrated everything and ruined everything. The problem is, if you reject Paul... Well, then you have to reject about 25% of the New Testament that he wrote, at least. Actually, you have to reject Peter's books, too, because he called Paul's writing scripture, lumped it in with the rest of scripture. Uh, and, of course, you have to reject Luke's writings. Luke wrote most of the New Testament, words, as far as words are concerned, because he corroborates everything that Paul says, and he says Paul, all the things Paul said and did were true. So now you're up north of 50% of the New Testament. You just got to toss it right on out. Uh, and really, you have to reject the whole thing because the canon of Scripture is not an a la carte you know, buffet that we get to pick and choose what we want. Of course, it's human nature to pick and choose what we want, right? Pick the things that feel good and pick the things that give us the license we want and reject the truths of God's Word. The mystery Paul is referring to is that the Gentiles have a full share in the promises of God and the benefits of salvation, and they don't have to become part of the nation of Israel to get those things. It's what he spells out in verse 6. Verse 6 is the mystery he's speaking of in this case. But this is an important distinction. Gentiles, we don't have to become members of Israel. And you think, well, in the Old Testament, you know, we see Gentiles coming in, Rahab and Ruth and Uriah the Hittite. Yeah, but they had to become part of the nation of Israel. They had to take on as many of the ritual uh, activities as they were allowed to take on in order to be covered. Now, this word mystery would have jumped off the page, or rather it would have really, you know, rang out as the speaker was reading this letter. Because in the Roman Empire, and in Ephesus specifically, there, there, there were all these mystery religions. They were, it's the same term that Paul is using. And the mystery religions were not only pervasive, they were super weird. And, and, and Paul is taking this term and he's highlighting the difference between the Christian mystery that he's talking about and these other mystery cults. Because you see, in the mystery religions in their city, everything was shrouded in secrecy. You couldn't just join. There are all these super weird, super pagan initiations you had to go through and fees you would have to pay. Those outside the group did not know what went on in the cults. There were very few written texts. You, you didn't write things down. It was supposed to be a mystery. This is a secret after all. It was treachery for a cult member to speak to outsiders about what they did, what they believed, the weird dances they performed at their rituals. The first rule of mystery religion is that you don't talk about mystery religion. And so Paul comes along and he says, I have a mystery for you now that you're part of our new religion here. It wasn't new, of course, but now that you're part of Christianity, I want you to know you're part of this mystery. And here's the difference. I, I'm going to write down on a scroll and broadcast this out. I want it read publicly as many times as you want to everybody you want. In fact, you should go out and tell people the good news that they are invited in freely. It's free, it's open, it's public. There's, it's not a secret. This is delivered by God himself so that everyone can know the fullness of the truth of heaven. Verse 4, by reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
we are invited to read and understand the revelation of God on the pages of his word. Eternal truth from heaven is collected and preserved and delivered to us so that we can grow in our knowledge and wisdom and so that we can evaluate the things we hear from human teachers and from human culture so that we can run all of those things through the lens of scripture and through the filter of what God has revealed and go back to the word and say how does what this person or this culture or this situation is saying how does that comport with what God has revealed from heaven and delivered to me That's why our focus here at Calvary is on the systematic teaching of the Bible in our gatherings. Because by reading God's word, we are able to understand more. And the more that we understand about the Lord and what he has done for us, the more we're able to experience the outflow of his grace and the working of his power in our lives. That's what Paul says. He says, man, I pray that you have a greater spirit of wisdom and understanding. That's really what you need. Because from there will flow all of the things that you actually need tangibly for your life. The answers and the comfort and the encouragement and the direction and the supply. Those come from you and I understanding more and more what it means to be in Christ. Understanding more of who Jesus is. More of who God is. More of his character. More of his nature. More of his truth. More of his calling. More of his will. The more we understand, the more you know. The star goes up, right? And like the more we know, Paul says, the more we are able to experience the power of God in our lives. Now notice this. It was more important for Paul to write to them than for him to come to their city again and work miracles a few more times. Way more important. Jesus said, okay. I want to save these Gentiles. I want to revolutionize their lives. I want to turn the world upside down. You know what we need Paul to do? We need Paul to be chained to a weird Roman soldier way over here, many, many, many miles away, and just write something down and send it to them. That's what we need for these Gentiles and all of the people around them. We don't need him to go back to Ephesus and perform more miracles. Now, he did perform a bunch of miracles in Ephesus. I love what it says in Acts. It says he performed unusual miracles (laughs) when he was in Ephesus. That was when like even like sweat rags were taken like from his tent shop and they would put them on sick people and the sick people would get better, right? But you see this juxtaposition where, where Jesus, God says, what do we need for the people of Ephesus? What's the thing they need most? They need Paul to write on a scroll. They need six chapters of truth, of revelation about what I have done for them about who they are in Christ, about my call for their lives. That's what they need most of all. That was the most important thing. And you know what? We benefit from that, right? Because if the Lord had said, you know what the most important thing is? For Paul to get back to Ephesus and perform a hundred more miracles. Wow, that would have been great. And we would have benefited nothing from that, right? No book of Ephesians in, in this analogy, Sure, 100 people get healed, and that's great for them. In the moment, they live for a few more years, right? And they're blessed, and that's wonderful, but we get nothing. Instead, the Lord says, you know what I need? I need Paul in jail for no reason, for years, so he can write some books that are going to change every community around the world for thousands of years. Wow. That puts a very different perspective on what was going on in Paul's life. And we, you know, in this situation, we're like on hands and knees saying, please allow yourself to be in jail. 
please allow yourself to suffer. Please don't pull the ripcord. And we see there are certain examples, even in the New Testament, we think of John Mark. He's a young man. He's, he's there on that first missionary journey. We don't know everything that's going on, but at some point he pulled the ripcord and he said, I, I can't hang with this anymore. Now, he ended up being restored, and, and even Paul, at the end of his life, he said, hey, send John Mark to me. He's useful to me. Or we see Demas, you know, he's working with Paul for a while, and then at the end of Paul's life, he's writing to Timothy, he says, man, Demas deserted us. He loves the things of the world. Oh, man. I think Demas is probably going to be in heaven. He just made a mistake because we all make mistakes. But in this situation, we see, man, Paul, please, please don't bail out of your suffering Please don't bail out of the calling God has placed on your life because we all here in Hanford, we really need the book of Ephesians and we need these other prison letters and we need this this testimony of what the Lord wanted to do through you. Paul isn't boasting here about his insight, kind of sounds weird, but he's explaining that God was doing a unique revealing work through his life. We know that often people would show up where Paul had planted churches and after he left would say, you know, that guy didn't know what he was talking about, right? You know that, right? You know, he, he didn't tell you the whole story and that you actually do have to become Jews. When he last talked to the Ephesian elders, Paul said, hey, by the way, he prophesied and warned them, there's going to be wolves that come in among you at your church. And he said, they're going to distort the truth. They're going to try to lure believers away. And so he's not boasting. He's trying to build the case that the message he gave them was true, that it was direct from God, and that they should be building their faith upon that. Not because he's so great, but because God was doing a unique work through his life. Verse 5, this was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul was the key channel through which God revealed this particular mystery, but he wasn't the only one. It was confirmed by all the apostles, which is why they are called the foundation of the church in chapter 2. There are gatekeepers when it comes to biblical revelation. It's not me, it's the apostles, it's the New Testament. God revealed truths through certain people, and they are the ones who laid out the perimeters within which our faith moves. I like that as a phrase from one of the commentaries, and I really like that. They laid the perimeters of our faith, and we operate within those perimeters. There is no new revelation, no 28th book of the New Testament. There is no new Paul for us to follow. When someone, and many, many men and women have stood up throughout history and say, hey, I have a new revelation, I'm a new Paul, I'm a new whatever, follow after me. What you thought about the Bible is not right, what you thought about God is not right, and people do follow after them, but we don't have to listen to them. We can immediately just say, no, you are not an apostle. There is no new revelation in that sense. There is no new Paul for us to follow after. What wasn't known in other generations? Certainly the idea of grace can be seen in the Old Testament. As far back as Abraham, we see God talking about ministering not just to people of Israel, but to all the nations of the world. So what does Paul mean here in verse 5? The new layer is the revelation that there would be no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the church. All people would have equal footing. Most of you know that in the Jewish temple, there were different areas. If you were a woman, you could only go in a certain area. If you were a Gentile, you could only go in a certain area. If you were a male Jew, 
You could go further, yep, but you were still separated from God's presence. You couldn't go all the way in. And now in the church, all are unified with full access to the Father. And in that sense, he says, there's no Jew or Greek, no male or female. Not that there aren't different roles and not that there isn't still a work God is going to do with ethnic Israel. He is. But within the church, it's all equal footing. God is going to do a special work still with ethnic Israel. He still has a particular plan for ethnic descendants of Abraham. That will be the focus of his efforts after the rapture of the church. But in the church age, this is the mystery now revealed. Verse 6, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The word members is one coined by Paul. He's the only one that has used it like anywhere. I don't know how that works in Greek, how you can just make up a word and everybody's like, I know what that means, but apparently he did. The important thing is that now in the church age, in the dispensation of grace, Gentiles like you and me are co-heirs, are co-members, are partners. That means we share in all the riches, all the rights, and the responsibilities of the Christian faith. Hearing this news should cause a listener to then ask, okay, well then what is my inheritance? What are the promises of Christ Jesus? How does this body I've been grafted into operate? And these are questions that the Bible answers. And and these are questions that are answered as we work out our salvation. Verse 7, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Paul's perspective here is important. He talks again about being given a gift. He says, God, by his grace, gave me a gift, and it was to make me a servant. It reminds me of that old song, Make Me a Servant. It was a good one. I know that in my own prayer life, I'm so often not praying that. I'm praying things like, Lord, make me successful, make me advantaged, make me whatever. And that's fine. The Lord cares about us bringing our request to him. He says, hey, cast your cares upon me. Not talking down about that. But I know that when I'm only focused on those sorts of things, the relief things, the supply things that I think I need, it can crowd out other things that the Lord might want to speak to me about my inheritance, his promises, my callings, and his greater work, our participation in this co-members, co-heirs, sharers, all of that. Remember, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier for years But looking at his life in this moment, he understood that God's power had energized him to be a table waiter for the gospel. That's what the term servant here means. Despite his genius, despite the miracles, despite his credentials and skill set, Paul recognized that he had been gifted this life so he could be a part of building up the body of Christ. Marcus Barth writes, the grace given to Paul makes him an instrument of God for diffusing grace. That's what the Lord wants to do, not just in Paul's life, but in each of our lives. Peter agreed with this idea. In verse Peter 4.10, we read, just as each one has received a gift, notice that terminology like Paul used, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So a lot of overlap between that verse and what Paul has been talking about. We're all members of the same body. We're all partners in the work. Thousands of years of God's plan has culminated to this dispensation and for you to be a particular special diffuser of his grace. Think of your house during these hot valley summers. Every room needs an AC supply vent, right? You want each one to be open to the flow of that cold air that brings the grace of coolness, 
right? I do. Maybe you have a room where you never go in there or whatever, and so you turn the supply vent off. And, you know, but when you do go in that room, no air is blowing in there. It's hot. It's stuffy. It's the worst place in the world. Very unpleasant at 5 p.m. in July, July, right? God brings us into his family, and he builds us alongside other living stones so that where we are, we can diffuse his grace in our corners of the world. It's a gift he's given us. Paul understood his place in the plan. He understood it was a unique work, a dramatic one from our perspective, for sure. But the fact of the matter is that the Lord has a unique work for you and for me too. Maybe it's not going to be canonized in, on, you know, for thousands of people to read for thousands of years. That's okay. But the work is still set apart for you. What has grace prepared for you? Using Paul's analogy, grace has made you a servant and now you get to discover what tables you get to wait. When John Leslie was handing out his $2 bills, someone asked him, how much are you going to give away? His answer was, I don't know, but I'm going to do this until it's all gone. He said that at first people were reluctant to take what he was offering, but he just kept at it. And the story unfolded. We don't know how much we'll get to diffuse, but let's keep doing it until we're all gone. Amen?